Hello, everyone, and welcome to Esoterica's The Interview. I'm Leah Eichler, and I'm here with Susan Cato, who I'm so thrilled to introduce because Susan is our new um, editor-in-chief. Yay, Susan! I'm so happy to be a part of Esoterica. No, Susan, and if you've read our press release, Susan comes with um, some ridiculous uh, background. Uh, I've known Susan for many, many years. We met at the Giller Awards, like, what seems like a lifetime ago, uh, and she was working for the New York Times, and then she since went to go work for Time Magazine, and then for The Economist, and uh, just a whole lot of exciting things. And she has a PhD in English literature, just that. I mean, nothing else, really. Uh, oh, and it's from uh, Oxford. Yeah, but, you know, but other than that, she's just uh, just your average gal. So thank you, Susan, for joining us. Thank you very much for that <laughs> kind introduction. We love you. Okay, so we're so happy to be back. It's been a few months. We're relaunching our interview. Uh, we're going to make it more uh, uh, talkative. We're going to bring in guests. We're going to talk about issues that are almost always pertaining to um, works of literature, to books, uh, to pop culture, where it intersects with books, and maybe um, what's happening in the news as it intersects with books and writing uh, and big ideas. Uh, and we're going to start off today with um, with the topic of what makes a good short story. Uh, so uh, this is something Susan and I have been discussing quite a bit over the last little while because we do have an award that we're running right now for uh, a short fiction prize coming up next year. Uh, the entries are still open, so you can still apply. We'd love to see what you have uh, to submit. Um, but what makes a good short story? I mean, what, what are your thoughts, Susan? Well, I've been really inspired by reading um, a relatively recent book, um, A Swim in the Pond in the Rain by George Saunders. George Saunders is himself a master of the short story, but he also is a teacher and he's famed for his short story course focusing on Russian literature. So what he's done is a book that any aspiring writer or current writer should not miss, um, in which he essentially delivers his course. He publishes the, the story um, and breaks into it to give you his lessons about why this story works. And I, it just it gave me a whole new way of thinking about short story structure because he sees formula and structure all over a good short story. And I, I think um, whether it's intentional or not, if you then look at the short stories that you love, you can't help but see that structure and formula. So I'm very interested how short story writers feel, whether they're building that into their stories as they work, whether it's something that emerges naturally. But when you read this book, um, you'll never, I think, think about it the same way. Is it, so it's interesting because you mentioned structure. So I think, I mean, as a writer, I think structure is such a fraught word because, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, obviously we use structure, but, um, you know, there's like these preconceived ideas that books have to have like a certain pattern to make it successful and short stories have a certain pattern to make it successful. And I mean, and, and writers do this all the time, the same short story patterns and, and novels play out again and again. Mm -hmm. And, you know, of course, most artists, you know, want to break the mold. And I'm guilty of that all the time. Um, so, you know, some of the actual uh, points you mentioned from the George Saunders' book is uh, when it comes to structure, uh, he refers to it as like a form of call and response. Yes. So how do you interpret that? So he basically says that a, a question arises in the, the story. 
And that question can come from anything like your just your first line. As soon as you introduce somebody and something happens to them, there's a question. This right. the writer then considerately, the story must answer that question. And his line is, if we want to make good structure, we just have to be aware of what question we are causing the reader to ask and then answer that question. And then he adds jokingly, see, structure's easy. You know what? Uh, Actually, uh, that's true. <laughs> I mean, it's funny, but it's also brilliant because, I mean, I'm a huge fan of, of opening lines. I mean, opening lines are so important. Yeah. But also, um, you know, this kind of helps uh, explain, you know, when reading short stories, you and I have read many, many, many short stories over the last little while. Um, you know, one of my gut reactions is, you know, you know, there's seems to be two types. There's the ones that have the beginning, middle, and end, which I have to admit are the ones I prefer because I feel like they formalize the story. Then again, there are beautiful ones that are just like snapshots of a place or a time or an experience, which I also quite like. But that could answer your question. That could be the, the call and response. It's like you can have a snapshot of someone's life, but you need to know what the question is. You need to know what the answer is. Uh, I, I find sometimes like people uh, want to make, they think that it's literary by actually uh, kind of just cutting off the ending and not you know, giving us the answer, but we, we want closure, right? We do want closure. We, um, you know, he says never, um, never, don't make things happen for no reason. Right. And having made something happen, make it matter. Yes. So, you know, it, a lot of that kind of comes down to concision. There should, mm. There's no flab in uh, a great short story, even though there might be plenty of detail. But right. it's all there to kind of make it happen. You're getting details that help the person visualize, um, you know, the, the scene you're painting. Mm. And, yeah, it's, it's, it's these facts that kind of draw us in. Um, I just... I just think there's one other point that I really think is important is uh, if you're one of those people that uh, thinks it's, he just thinks all you need is a sentence to start yeah, um, and that you should just get your sentences down. But what separates writers who publish from writers who don't publish is a willingness to revise. Well, yeah, we know about revisions. We revise a lot and a lot. Yes, we revise all the time. So I think that's important. I think writers should know that. Get your story out, get it on the paper, and then go back and fix it. You actually gave uh, two examples earlier that I just want to bring up because, uh, you know, in short stories, I, I love that idea. And I think it works in long form as well that everything has to be important. Like, there, you know, every character has to have an objective. Like, every, you know, description has to be relevant. But, I, you know, you... What I love about short stories is you really need to like cut the fat, you know, and it has to, it can be an 8,000 word short story, but it still has to have all the important elements. And you mentioned just the facts versus descriptions. Mm -hmm. So, and as a journalist, as journalists that we are, you know, facts are really new. So we've say things like the car was dented in red versus just, you know, it's not just describing, it's like it, they're facts about the car, which actually place us in that, uh, you know, in that world, right? Yeah, it's, it's a great way other than, you know, you're not saying the car looked like it had been through, you know, some pretty rough traffic uh, right. with some dents on the side and, and um, scratches in its red paint. It's just like, just get it out there. You no, know, it's fun fact, because it's short stories that we're talking about, yeah. but one of my favorite details about The Great Gatsby, an incredible short novel, is right. that it was originally something like, you know, four times the length of the published book. He wrote that book and then he just cut and cut and cut until every line is essential. 
that I did not know that. I mean, so, no, I didn't. I, I just um, really, really can't recommend. Um, there's a there's a great book about um, the Great Gatsby as well called Careless People that um, I would recommend as well. But for people who are interested in writing technique, I would say this George Saunders book is up there with the other book that I think is a must read, which is Stephen King's On Writing. Yes, of course. I, I it's a regular on my uh, Audible. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great one too. Now these are that great, great tips. And you know, listening in, submit your story. We really cannot wait to read your stories. Uh, we're very excited about this uh, about this contest. Uh, so we talked about a good story, short story, and now let's get to your um, your expertise. Uh, so Susan is, wrote a uh, big idea piece for Esoterica called the Top Ten F Boys of Classic Literature. Um, and you know I, what I love about it, and this is a perfect Esoterica piece, is it mixes you know that really cerebral um, you know uh, basis in literature, but also brings it you know kind of lightheartedness. I mean, not everything needs to be so serious. And when you think about it, you know. Do you want to define? I think our audience knows what an F boy is, but uh, you know, do you want to define F boy for us? Well, um, I was inspired by the a show, and I, I will say, like, because I do have a, a, a PhD in literature, <laughs> I feel I have an absolute right to do things like watch shows called F boy Island. Um, and no, I, I you have total about it. I don't believe you to write, yeah, you got you can watch that, you can, I can watch, watch that. that. Um, so I did watch it. Yeah. And it was very funny. Like it's a quite a tongue in cheek version of a reality dating show right. where half of the men on the island are self-proclaimed F boys who are just in it to score and to maybe get the cash prize at the end. And half of the guys are self-proclaimed nice guys. But mm -hmm. the women, and there's three of them, don't know which is which. So that's the drama of that show. Um, and that's OK. So an F boy basically is someone who is really, really skilled with the majority of the opposite sex at charming them. Even if you don't want to like him, there's something about him that is fairly irresistible mm -hmm. um, and they can kind of handsome or talk or in the case of this show, you know, show off their um, their their core muscles or whatever to an extent <laughs> that is is, uh, is hard to that other men may, might find hard to compete with. Um, and of course, men like this are not just the that we see them in real life, but we see them in literature, too. I was struck by how similar the experiences, um, apart from the shirtlessness, um, lined up with Jane Austen novels that uh, I happen to be reading. So J every Jane Austen novel has an, an F-boy, right. a character who poses a, a real threat to the women in the story, um, even as he adds that sex appeal and sizzle. Mm. Um, so that's what I started looking at. I think Jane Austen, and as I explained in my piece, does this incredibly well, both mocking them, right. um, but also showing why they are so appealing to us. And you can think of obvious people like Wickham in Pride and Prejudice or Willoughby in Sense and Sensibility is probably, you know, the ultimate archetype. But I wanted to ask, I know you're a big fan of, you know, Emily Bronte and so forth. So I want to take it beyond Austen and sort of say, yeah. who are some of these other um, F-Boys of classic literature, who jumps out to you? Well, it's interesting because, I mean, I am so, you know, Susan and I have an ongoing feud of if, if, if Bronte is better than Austen. I, I, I should, I come across, I do like Jane Austen. I just, I really love Wuthering Heights. I mean, it's just one of my favorite books. 
But, uh, you know, I actually I don't, I, the thing that's interesting about Jane Austen, and if I have to generalize about her books, is that she has the two archetypes. So she's always comparing what I refer to as like the boring state kind of man, who turns out to be okay, maybe or maybe not. And, you know, the very vivacious F-boy, let's call him, okay? Yeah. So, you know, it's the two, it's like, who do I pick? You know, let's go into, you know, like, I mean, it's almost the basis of every romance novel. You know, I mean, do I pick the, you know, you know the, the hot, dangerous guy who may never settle down with me, or do I pick the tried and true guy? Um, so, you know, it, it is fascinating. I will say, I don't think Heathcliff is an F boy. Let's just go there. Just drop that. I think okay. he's, he's widely, I, cause I, I think, um, we need to differentiate between F boys that are in it for the hustle and those that are just tragically flawed, because I don't think mm -hmm. it's an intentional, like I'm going to string you along intentionally. It's the tragic flaw, which is all, which in my mind is hugely appealing. It's got his name on me. But uh, I definitely like the tragically flawed. So um, I don't know. Let's talk about some of the other F boys that are in uh, classic literature. So did, what other ones did you talk about in your in your article? That um, well, I, I will say that, you know, prior to Jane Austen, it's not like the F boy didn't exist. Yeah. He just wasn't maybe written as well. So, uh, and authors that really influenced Jane Austen, Samuel Richardson and Henry mm -hmm. Fielding, who wrote um, right before Austen, uh, they both had uh, F boys in, in Richardson's case, an uh, anti hero right. um, in Clarissa and Pamela. Right. Um, in Henry Fielding's case, a book like Tom Jones. Tom Jones is, is, is a classic F boy. He's lovable. He, he's not right. trying to wreck anyone's life, but he just. He just can't help it if women throw themselves at him. Right. Um, if you go even further back, uh, you could say that Odysseus was an F boy because, you know, I mean, he, he's he's meeting, he's seducing, he's having no trouble with uh, uh, the ladies, and right. he's not especially bothered with um, the repercussions of that. Right. No, um, I, I think that's that's really true, and, and you actually mentioned. Uh, uh, the talent of Mr. Ripley. Uh, let's like go from you know from book to film. Uh, also one yes. of my favorite and also very appealing at boys in, in, in that one. Oh my god, um, Dickie Greenleaf is I think especially as personified by Jude Law. Right. Again, archetypal F boy. You 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 want to be able to sort of go. I know what that guy's like. But even though you're like I know what that guy's like, you're still like, wow, impressive. Um, and I think that's why Jane Austen is so cool because she doesn't actually have her, uh, even her most sensible heroine will right. not be able to just completely dismiss and be disgusted by. She'll be like, I know he's an idiot, but you got to hand it to him. He's charming. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's very true. It's very true. I think uh, there, great literature is littered by it. I would just, uh, I would love to know what anyone watching this thinks about their favorite novel. Uh, who's the F boy that they like in classic literature or who's the, you know, it's 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 the scene stealers, really. Right. Well, I mean, maybe people can write in and talk about who they think is their um, most revered or you know most enticing f boy in, in classic literature, the modern literature. Uh, it comes up, I think. You know, I and we talk about uh, you know kind of stereotypical structures of you know different. I mean, that's really that dichotomy of like um, the f boy and the the, the tried and tested and true uh, man um, is really, you know, it just, it's very pervasive. I mean, it really is everywhere. And it's funny. I wonder if that's why we like shows like 
F boy so much um, mm -hmm. because it's rooted in in what we've actually been reading all along. Maybe there should be like a um, an F boy a period piece, and they should place it in like you know. Century. <laughs> well, there was an old motto, um, you know, in Samuel Richardson's time that a reformed rake makes the best husband. And he set out to dis disprove that because he thought it was a really pernicious myth that, right. you know, kind of once an F-boy, always an F-boy. But on the show F-boy Island, you have these guys who claim that they are reformed F-boys and they are considered the big catch because they allegedly can offer the excitement um, while still being faithful and, uh, you know, husband material. Mm -hmm. um, you know, none of it is fair. <laughs> Most right. people cannot be divided into those categories, right. but it is a little bit of fun. And I think it's a, it's a, it's kind of fun to look at classic literature through this lens. I, I got a kick out of it. I, I well, uh, our audience uh, will be, uh, will be able to read your full piece the next week or so while we're promoting it. And uh, maybe I'll follow it up with one on uh, F girls of literature. You never know. Oh my God. Is there, there must be such a thing. Now I gotta think about that one. So there's gotta be an F girl of Cosplit too. And no one's as kind to <laughs> these those women. They That's usually true. get much meaner names. Okay. But maybe not nowadays. Okay, so let's let's move on to um, we want to talk briefly about uh, life in the newsroom, and we'll, we'll we'll tackle this topic again once the book comes out. But Margaret Sullivan's uh, Newsroom Confidential is coming out in October. Um, well, and, and and why don't you tell us a bit about Margaret Sullivan for readers who don't know? Yeah, so she's worked in newsrooms for uh, for about four decades, um, and she started off at the Buffalo News. But um, most people will know her because she was appointed in 2012 as the public editor of the New York Times. Right. Um, and that was in a role where she was then, in, you know, in these very contentious times talking about the actual reporting, how it happens. She was the one that people went to when they felt things were unfair, when they felt there was fake news, um, unethical practices. She was addressing all these journalistic issues. So the book is a bit about um, navigating the controversies of the New York Times. So I'm really mm -hmm. looking forward to reading, the, reading that. But I also think it's interesting that she's writing about uh, life in a newsroom and battling mm -hmm. sexism in a newsroom. And I, I thought of you, Leah, because you used to run a newsroom um, at Reuters. So I, I just thought it might be a great one for you and I to talk about. Well, you know, and it's interesting. I mean, it's been a few years since I've been working in the newsroom full time, although, you know, I've never left journalism per se. But, uh, you know, the, uh, the kind of the sad state of journalism, why public editors are so interesting to me is, uh, you know, in the last 10, 15 years, journalism and has taken such a hit. You know, I feel like the reputation, uh, you know, I kind of, I feel like, um, you know, I and I know maybe you as well, you know, we kind of grew up in, in what I now refer to my mind as like the golden years of journalism, when people still trusted the news, or at least not everyone did, but more people did than do now. Um, you know, and for those that are unfamiliar with the profession, um, rest assured, there is a very uh, extreme code of conduct that goes uh, into every newsroom, um, and they are meticulous. And sometimes people don't make mistakes. Not like people don't have biases, but really, really good newsrooms will do their best to uh, keep all those at bay. Um, and uh, and it's been really sad to watch, you know, the, the news disintegrate over the last 10, 15 years with. Um, with uh, statements like fake news, which now, you know, has made everyone really, you know, disprove everything. I mean, you can't really 
um, there's really no reliability and people don't know what to rely on anymore, which I think is a really, really sad state of affairs. And of course, a major hit to our democracy. But, um, you know, when it talks, when we talk about you know, newsroom sexism, yes, I mean, there was a ton of sexism. When I started, there were almost no women in the newsroom, uh, in our, at least the newsrooms I worked in, maybe, I'd say maybe less than 30% uh, wow. were comprised as women. And, um, and, you know, I do remember, uh, you know, the boys taking trips to strip clubs and being called the girl. <laughs> Uh, and things like that. And I'm sure that's so pervasive. And I mean, newsrooms uh, and media companies, as we know, it's, it hasn't really changed. We have our own kind of, uh, you know, for those who have been following the news, um, uh, we, you know, at CTV, there's a whole uh, brouhaha at CTV over uh, Lisa LaFlamme, who mm. was and by all appearances unceremoniously dismissed because potentially ageism, potentially sexism, potentially uh, gray hair. I mean, there's a whole list of litany of things, but what we can't dispute is that she was a top-notch journalist that uh, was still in her prime. And uh, we don't know why she was dismissed, um, really, and we probably will never really know. Um, but I think sexism is still there. Well, I mean, I think yeah. it's still very pervasive, and it's, uh, it's a shame. Well, I mean, what do you think, Sue? I think... You know, my mother worked in uh, newsrooms in uh, Detroit and then in Toronto at the Globe and Mail. And yeah. for her, um, her career was expected to be over when she had children. So right. she, you know, um, she got married and it was basically like just a given. You don't continue working once you um, once you start a family. So right. that was kind of the end of her uh, newsroom experience. But but prior to that. Yeah, there was, it was just a given that you were one of the very few, you were subject to, um, you know, quite a little, a little, quite a lot of belittling. You were, um, mm -hmm. your work was relegated to women's sections of the newspaper. And, uh, um, but for all that, it, you know, it's still. Well, you know, I don't think it's changed. I don't know, it, you know, maybe it's changed now. And of course, you know, we can go into a whole long uh, debate on what it means to be a feminist now, but I, I, I honestly, uh, not the same generation as as your mom, but I had my first child in, um, well, uh, eighteen years ago, and um, and I was also asked at the time if I would be coming to work after my mat leave, um, and then and I remember thinking it was the most puzzling thing. I'd spent my life trying to get that job, and why wouldn't I come back? <laughs> um, you know, I had no intention of staying at home forever. Um, with my with my kids, but of course in Canada we're, we're lucky to have the option. But no, I want to definitely want to go back. So I, I'm curious how it is right now. Maybe people write in and tell us their uh, worst sexism stories in their media outlets. Uh, I'm sure there are many many of them, and we can report on them later. Absolutely. And so, final topic uh, of the day is it's been forty. It's the fortieth and forty-five years now. Oh, forty-five wow. years! My mistake. Forty-five years since *The World of and Garp* was first published. Now, Sue, you read this as a teeny tiny girl. What were your first impressions of the book? So, I have always felt that uh, permanently, like life scarred by reading *The World According <laughs> to Garp*, way too yeah. young. Yeah. Um, I probably read it uh, as, I mean, like shortly after, I would have read it after the paper book edition came out. So I would have been 
maybe yeah. a tween. Yeah. Um, so inappropriate. It was my first encounter with so many things. Um, but boy, did it ever make an impression. And I've, I've, I've always read a lot of John Irving novels ever since. Um, and I do think um, it's a really significant book in literature that has, um, you know, never really, uh, it was so ahead of its time. It in really was so um, ahead of its time. I know. So, I mean, I have, and you interviewed John Irving. Actually, I yes. interviewed him years later. So I, I think he around, I don't know. I don't know how many, when did you interview John Irving? I love it. I interviewed him um, in, in his home in Vermont when his novel, one of, um, it would have been about seven or eight years ago. Okay. It would have been probably, yeah, his last novel was seven years ago. So I think it was a novel before that. So it might've been even like a little bit before that um, because he's now publishing his first novel uh, in seven years in October. Right. It's called The Last Chairlift. He's 80 right. years old now. So I'm quite curious to read that. I found him absolutely fascinating to meet. And the thing I found the most interesting was his compulsion to write. You would think there's an Oscar statuette in his bathroom from the movie, the screenplay of, you know, that he wrote for Cider House Rules, I think. Um, and he's such a bestseller. His, his house had all the framed, you know, New York Times bestseller list. Uh, could he relax and chill? No, he <laughs> could not. He was every day driven to write every day all day and i just thought you know his poor wife like he is never <laughs> he's never so yeah. i mean he that's kind of a writer's life right i mean yeah. you just you do it's like more of a madness than anything else i mean you kind of have to get out there i mean or else it's like write or die really that's how i think a lot of us feel he just does it so much better than so many of us so yeah he reminds me again, like Stephen King again is one of those yeah. people. He's going to write every single day. And John Irving mm -hmm. is like every day. It was Christmas, no exceptions. Like yeah. he writes every day. So Amazing. I think it's, it's so interesting. I think I've heard there's going to be um, that he's written a, a mini series version of The World According to Garp, like for television now. So that's kind of a, something I would love I to see how. I just read that today when I was looking. And yeah, that's, that, that would be really exciting. So a uh, question for you. And I actually did interview him, I think it must have been years before you did. Um, and it was a very brief interview. And on his home was in Toronto. It, and it was um, on the release of his book, Until I Find You, which is still a book I love. Uh, and for those of you who haven't read it, it is a, a fabulous story. Um, and, I, you know, and I realized, you know, speaking of the world of Cornyn Garvis, he, he does have a lot of um, single mothers in his book. I mean, he was a child of a single mother. Um, and I guess the question comes out now because, you know, things have changed and he was ahead of his time. I think at the time of World According to Garp, there was no, um, there was no debate that he was a feminist writer. So would you still consider him a feminist writer is the question. Now, you know, in our, in 2022, is he a feminist writer? It's really hard to say because, you know, the World According to Garp starts off, uh, as I recall, because I've been too traumatized to go back and reread it. Um, <laughs> Starts off, as I recall, with all kinds of descriptions of the young character uh, looking at porn. And so it's descriptions, dissections of these pornographic photos. Right. Um, didn't feel especially feminist uh, to True. me, but in the humanity that he gives, um, you know, the mother in that story, the single mother, the agencies that she takes right. um, for her life. And then the way he engages with uh, some with with transgender issues with with the feminist issues this whole society of, of women who cut off their tongues you know 
um, yeah. in sympathy with a rape victim who has her tongue cut off. There's there's a lot that's engaged in there. I would be shocked if he, um, you know, wasn't one of the more feminist male writers of his era, for sure. Right. Like, I, right. I, I don't, if you compare him to, you know, someone like Updike or whatever, you're, you're going to, I know he's he's a little younger there, but if you right. compare, um, I don't think his characterization of females, they really are treated as like real, fully rounded people. They are. No, that's true. So we will uh, talk more about that in the coming weeks. Um, and uh, I want everyone to uh, tune in next Tuesday. This will be a regular Tuesday session. We will have guests. We will have different topics. You can call in or or. or post in whatever it is and engage with us and we, we're really looking forward to making um, the interview something that our readers will uh, really uh, cherish and uh, look forward to and the last uh, ditch reminder I, I know we said at the beginning is we do have a short story contest running right now so you can submit your short story uh, Susan and I will be uh, reviewing them there are blind submissions anyone can uh, submit we uh, you know, new writer, um, you know, experienced writer, you name it, we are open to reading your lovely words. Um, I wanted to thank you guys all again for tuning in. Uh, my name is Leah Eichler. I am with Susan Cato. We are from Esoterica, and we will see you next Tuesday. Goodbye, everyone. Bye.